Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. It's not a binary, like no diabetes and then diabetes. There's a big spectrum that happens in between there and all these steps that we have to take to get there. So what we want to do is be identifying that insulin as it's rising because the insulin can start to rise a decade before we ever see an abnormal fasting glucose or abnormal A1C. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today's episode is a spotlight on PCOS in honor of PCOS Awareness Month. Our guest today is a treasured colleague and trusted source on all things PCOS. We're joined today by the hormone dietitian herself, Melissa Groves Azaro. Let me tell you a little bit about Melissa. She is the founder of the Hormone Dietitian LLC and is an integrative dietitian who helps busy women with hormone imbalances, PCOS, and fertility issues to regain regular symptom-free periods and get pregnant naturally. She uses a functional medicine approach to identify and address the root causes of symptoms with a personalized nutrition, supplement, and lifestyle plan to balance hormones and optimize fertility. She works virtually with clients in the U.S. in one-on-one and group programs. She's the creator of the PCOS Root Cause Roadmap and the Period Problems Root Cause Roadmap. She's the author of A Balanced Approach to PCOS and is the host of the podcast Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. I've been waiting for this moment. It's so fun to have you. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and just so you know, um, I had Dr. Waddles on my podcast uh, last season. So be sure to check that episode out as well. It's coming full circle. We already know we had a great time podcasting together. And this is really perfect timing for us to reconnect because not only is it PCOS Awareness Month, but we also have some new international expert guidelines in PCOS. They're hot off the press. So this is a great time to pick your brain about what those look like. Melissa, will you kind of give us your hot takes from those new guidelines? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, the original ones in 2018, um, they did acknowledge that nutrition and lifestyle make a difference in PCOS. They're mostly medical focused. You know, they're talking to practitioners about best practices in PCOS based on expert consensus. Um, you know, so there were a few mentions of nutrition in the, the 2018 ones. It basically said, you know, no one diet is better than any other for PCOS, um, recommended a calorie deficit and recommended a five to 10% weight loss for people with PCOS. And we know that's kind of problematic because not all people with PCOS actually have five to 10% to lose. Um, and weight losing weight doesn't actually cure PCOS. So, you know, it may help with some of the symptoms, but it's not the end all be all when it comes to PCOS. So I think it's gone a few steps further in terms of acknowledging the importance of nutrition and lifestyle management. It comes right out and says every person with PCOS should be recommended diet and lifestyle changes, um, referred to allied health practitioners like dietitians. Um, the other thing that it does differently is it acknowledges the higher rates of disordered eating and weight stigma in PCOS, you know, 
And the hope is that the more doctors are aware of this, the less the advice given to people with PCOS is just lose weight and that will fix everything, you know? So, um, definitely some, some, some updates. There were about four recommendations when it comes to nutrition, there were about eight lifestyle recommendations and two exercise recommendations. Um, I didn't get a chance to deep dive through the entire document yet. Um, inositol was mentioned in the previous one, seems to have carried over into this one. So it's really just taking what we had and elevating the importance of nutrition and lifestyle, as well as highlighting the importance for a tailored, personalized, co-developed approach with people with PCOS. So, you know, highlighting that thing that we've all known, which is there's no one PCOS protocol that works for all people with PCOS. Well, I really admire your education around that piece because when you when you originally shared these guidelines, and this is your philosophy all along is, yes, we know nutrition, exercise, lifestyle change is important, but that will look different for every person. So there's no way we can create a blanket statement about what that looks like. Exactly. I feel very uh, relieved in, you know, the way that I practice, and this is always the way that I have practiced. So I'm not sort of scrambling to <laughs> rework all of my programs because, of these new updates. Yeah. Yeah. Something I I also kind of briefly read through the guidelines, but something that struck me was um, there was a statement that said, I think it's the wording was um, in those with PCOS, there's a very high prevalence of psychological features, which mm -hmm. to me was like, okay, it's kind of strange wording, but it's underscoring the importance of this mental, emotional, spiritual aspect for me that often is ignored. And so I was just happy to have some brief mention like, wow, this is more than just the biomedical management, that there's also a, a mental health piece that we should be addressing. Yeah, I think, you know, specifically depression, anxiety, binge eating disorder, and other forms of disordered eating, uh, body image issues, having to do with having dealing with this condition your whole life. Um, there are multiple things, you know, that make it actually very risky to recommend restrictive diets in these folks because those are only going to worsen pre-existing mental health issues. Absolutely. Well, I love your uh, ability to be a PCOS myth buster, something I really admire about you. And you're always just giving really approachable, realistic advice. And I think we see a lot of reductionist PCO adv PCOS advice on the internet, you know, low carb and exercise this way and eat this way and do these things. I wanted to spend some time with you today talking about how we might approach this more from a functional nutrition, functional medicine perspective, using the systems biology and looking at all of the body systems. So, I mean, when you're working with your own clients, are they surprised when you bring it up? Like, wow, this is actually more than just the reproductive axis. I want to talk to you about all these body systems. Yeah, they're kind of surprised. And oftentimes it's the first time they've ever heard it before. You know, a lot of them thinking in particular of my, my IBS folks, you know, a lot of them have been dealing with IBS all their life alongside PCOS and not realized that they're actually connected. Um, I think one of the, the biggest misunderstandings about PCOS is that it's a reproductive 
condition, then that's it. But it's actually a very complicated metabolic and reproductive condition that affects nearly every system in your body. And that's why some of those reductionist recommendations, like just do low and slow exercise or just cut out gluten are not going to work because they're only a tiny, teeny, tiny piece of everything that's going on. Absolutely. When I'm kind of making the case for a systems-based approach, it's like, oh, well, when we file a condition under this is a reproductive issue, or it's just a hormonal issue, then we're so tempted to only offer hormonal solutions, right? Oh, here's your birth control because this is a hormonal issue. So having that understanding of the multi-system impact really gives us the opportunity to add precision to our treatment plan, right? So I love your approach. It does. But then, you know, hearing you talk about it, it's like, that's why it's so complicated to get any help within the conventional existing healthcare system, because ideally your PCP would know a little bit about hormones and gut and reproduction, but they don't. So it's your PCP is kind of acting as the hub or should be acting as the hub, the OBGYNs handling all the ovaries and uterus, and then you're getting referred to a reproductive endocrinologist for fertility or an endocrinologist for the diabetes or thyroid issues. So there are all these pieces and nobody's talking to each other. And I think that's one of the things that this new expert guidelines is trying to highlight is this need for interdisciplinary communication and collaboration to treat the whole person and not just, you know, one part of it. And that's why we are here to do what we're doing, because you don't you don't know what you don't know. And I think oftentimes, I mean, how could you how as a patient, how could you feel empowered to ask, well, could you look at this system? Could you put these pieces together? Because it's just not common. No, no one is prompting you to know about this. So this is why we're, we're doing what we're doing. And I think I love that you already brought in the gut health perspective. I think you and I both are have a deep interest in what's going on in the gut because of the impact on so many other body systems. I mean, the effect of our gut health really rolls out into the rest of all of our systems. Will you will you just give us a little primer on how the health of our gut might contribute to PCOS symptoms? Yeah, so there's a few ways that they're linked. Um first, we know, and we don't know too much about it, we know that this is a thing, um, the gut microbiome in people with PCOS is different than the gut microbiome in people without PCOS. And, you know, we're still in the very, very early days of learning what the gut microbiome is and what it does for us. We do know gut microbiome impacts digestion, absorption, blood sugar balance, weight, metabolism, inflammation, mood, hormones, more. So having those differences, you know, even if we don't quite know exactly what's responsible, could be contrib contributing to some of those symptoms of PCOS. Um, there's also a huge overlap between PCOS and these conditions, as I mentioned before. Um, I would say probably about half of the people I work with are dealing with at least moderate to significant gut changes or imbalances. And finally, and I know you you love to dig into this too, but 
gut is the final step of hormone disposal. So once we use a hormone, we have to get rid of it. The gut is where it leaves. So that's where the excess hormones leave our body. And if that's not operating well, then those excess hormones are sticking around and worsening symptoms. So, you know, multiple ways it's, it's very complicated, but gut is literally central to your body. So when your gut is not working, it makes it that much more difficult for anything else to be working well. Ooh, that gut health, it is complex, isn't it? I have so many questions to follow up, but I think that this is a real area where I like to investigate in patients with PCOS because we'll get into this, but we see inflammation as a real mediator of symptoms. And the gut is one of the most common sources of chronic inflammation that I see in my population. I'm sure you see that too. I opened up the floor the other day on Instagram to talk about the connection between gut health and fertility. And I had some really thoughtful questions that I wanted to get your perspective on. And someone asked, if I think I have something going on in my gut, should I do some testing? Do I just try some things and see if the symptoms resolve? Like, what's the best way to assess what's happening in my gut? So I wanted to get your thoughts on assessment tools. Yeah, you know, I know you're a fan of the functional gut tests as well. Um, you know, that's really the only way we're going to get truly accurate information about what's going on inside your gut. Um, for people who suspect their gut might have have an issue and they're having some, say, mild symptoms, they're having um, some heartburn or some abdominal pain or some gas and bloating after eating or, you know, some constipation or loose stools, but it's kind of moderate. It's annoying, but it's not taking over their lives. Um, I like to start with the basics of good gut health because the tests are so expensive and oftentimes we don't need to go there. You know, if we can get someone chewing their food, like sitting down and eating a meal in a mindful way and chewing their food thoroughly. I've had clients who wanted to cut grains out of their diet because they're seeing undigested grains in their stool. It's like, how about we try chewing our grains first so that we're not seeing them come out? Let's start there. Um, you know, the basics of good gut health. So increasing fiber, prebiotics, probiotics, polyphenols, chewing, mindfulness. I like to um, get into rest and digest mode before a meal. So sitting down, activating that vagal nerve, doing some, some belly breathing before we eat so that we're calm and in a place to digest and absorb our food. Um, so oftentimes that's enough because these are things people have never done or never paid any focus to. Um, if we do all that and then things are still happening or if things are severe, if they're really struggling with severe gut symptoms or anything that's absolutely not normal, like blood. If you see blood in your stool, that is immediately get yourself to a gastroenterologist because that is not something that diet is going to fix. Um, and I've seen people go down that route too long, too long. They're blaming the food. They're eliminating this food and that food. And it's actually not the food that's the issue. So a lot of times with a really severe gut issue, I may end up referring to a gastroenterologist to check things like an endoscopy and a colonoscopy to make sure that 
you know, all of the valves are working the way they're supposed to. There's nothing happening in there that's an actual pathological condition and not just imbalance or dysfunction, you know? So it is really complicated. I do like to use the GI map um, for functional testing. Um, I What I have found it to be most useful in is those things that you don't suspect at all. You know, I've had clients who are fully, you know, colonized with H. pylori or Giardia or, you know, mm-hmm all these random things they didn't know they had, whether they traveled in college or had a, you know, bout of food poisoning or, or something like that, you know, they pick up these things and they, they stay and they're causing issues down the road. Um, another thing, and I just had a new client who had this issue. Um, she was prescribed Accutane in her teens and twenties for her acne, Um, And that messes your gut microbiome up so much. But for so many of us, it's, you know, then we have to go to, if the root causes the gut, what's the root cause of the gut issues, you know? And then it's, most of us had, you know, antibiotics multiple times as kids, whether it was the recurrent ear infections or sinus infections or whatever, you know, how you were born, whether you were breastfed, all of these things, the sterile environment, you know, where everything was wiped clean with Clorox wipes and we weren't allowed to touch a germ. That's all bad for our gut microbiome. So, you know, once we uncover gut issues, then we have to go another step back to figure out what caused it so we can prevent it from just coming back again. You know, it's complicated. Guts even more complicated. Dang, isn't that the truth? But what you're highlighting for me is a fertility evaluation or a hormone evaluation when done right is also reducing risk for chronic diseases later in life. So when we do this thorough screening, we're catching things because we're asking questions no one has asked before and we're doing testing that no one has ever done before. And that's this case that I'm making all the time for a really comprehensive fertility eval is it's not just about your reproductive health. It's about cultivating health and longevity so that you can enjoy this family that you're trying to build or the freedom in your health that you're trying to cultivate it's really about whole person wellness. It's so interesting you say that because, you know, I feel that way a lot. And oftentimes that's the feedback that I get from my clients is you're the first one who has ever put these pieces together, or you're the first one who has ever, you know, asked me that question. And, you know, we're as functional providers who are looking at systems and root causes, we're identifying those patterns, you know, like I can instantly see inflammation jump out at me when I'm reading through someone's intake and I don't even have to test inflammation to know that they're inflamed. Mm -hmm. Um, But the kind of things, you know, we're just thinking in different, and also we spend more time with our patients too. So we're asking them deeper questions and you know, just the random things that, that I've picked up on and directed someone I can't diagnose, but I can ask the question, you know, I had one recently where I said, has everyone, anyone ever asked you about interstitial cystitis? She kept Mm -hmm. having UTIs with no bacteria. And I was like, have you ever been evaluated for this? Never. Um, you know, just things like that, where I had another one with constipation, Uh, turned out to be, you know, functional pelvic floor health issues, not anything she was eating. So, you know, being able to take that bigger view of someone and all of their symptoms and try to put it together to figure out what, what might be going on here. 
I think that's where functional medicine really shines mm-hmm. in our ability to tell this story that combines all of the body systems. And on this topic of chronic inflammation, we talked about the gut as one source of chronic inflammation, yes. but you just are making me think of, um, I'm always screening for periodontal disease Mm-hmm. Because we see that as such a frequent source of chronic inflammation, and we'll get these patients and they're trying to get pregnant, and their inflammation just won't go down despite the dietary changes and the supplements and all the things. And then we say, okay, well, when I look in your mouth, your gums are red and irritated, and do do your gums bleed when you floss? And when was the last time you had your just general cleaning at the dentist? So just asking the questions and looking outside of just the uterus and the ovaries. It's so important. Yeah. Inflammation. Um, you know, I, I agree. Gut is one of the most common causes I see for inflammation in my clients. PCOS itself. We don't know why it's part of the disease pathology that people with PCOS have a higher CRP than people without PCOS. I do think, you know, gut is one excess body fat, you know, and I hate to be the bad guy and talk about it, but visceral fat, especially so that fat that we carry in and around our organs, that is the type of fat that is detrimental to our cardiometabolic health. That is the kind of fat that is risky, you know, as opposed to someone who's more pear-shaped, they may put more weight on in their hips and thighs. That's less of a risk. And we know that. Um, Then we have to talk about diet and lifestyle. And I think it's so oversimplified to say, cut out dairy, cut out gluten, cut out sugar. And that is an anti-inflammatory diet because it's, it's not, I mean, we're talking about the highly processed foods. We're talking about sugar, um, but mostly we're not getting enough of the anti-inflammatories and antioxidants. So we're not eating enough fatty fish. We're not eating enough antioxidants, darkly colored fruits and vegetables, and then lifestyle. And, you know, sedentary lifestyle is as inflammatory as having a pack of cigarettes a day. Um, and then we have to talk about those lifestyle factors. Like I eat everything organic, but I have three glasses of wine every night. Like that is so inflammatory. So we have to look at where inflammation is coming from. And inflammation is one of the hardest ones, as you know, because we can test, you know, CRP, we can look specifically at gut inflammation and see if, you know, calprotectin's high. Um, we can see if the gut's leaking, but it's it's hard to figure out where that inflammation is coming from. And, you know, there are other practitioners, we all have our, our things, you know, it's like our, your, you like the gum health, let's check out periodontal. That's definitely something to evaluate other people go down the mold route or, yeah. you know, they, those weird things. Um, but regardless, there are whatever the thing is that we have to basically eradicate to lower in our inflammation, we can add things to our nutrition and lifestyle to be more supportive of lowering inflammation. Well, I'll take a, a humble moment and just let everyone know, sometimes I don't figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Because it's so complicated. And in, in all reality, it's often coming from multiple sources. Mm-hmm. And I don't always pinpoint the thing But I think it's so reassuring that we can fall back on these very foundational lifestyle practices, ensuring antioxidant adequacy and removing the inflammatory triggers we know about. 
And that's going to help in most people, no matter what the root of it is. Mm-hmm. Well, as we're doing this exploration of the connection between all of these body systems, I have to bring it to the adrenals because I see this all the time and I know you do too. It seems like PCOS and elevated cortisol go hand in hand. These is like, it's like the besties of hormonal imbalance patterns. Will you talk to us a little bit about how adrenal dysfunction or HPA axis dysfunction, elevated cortisol might contribute or worsen PCOS symptoms? Yeah. I'm going to go back and say that it's not a hundred percent accurate to talk about high cortisol and PCOS being linked. Um, even though that is the widespread message that if you have PCOS, you want to lower your cortisol, right? I test thousands of people. I have tested thousands of people. I see just as much low cortisol in PCOS as I see high cortisol. I would, and it's, you know, the pattern, it's the flatline cortisol that allows inflammation and autoimmune conditions to creep in, seeing a lot of flatlined cortisol post-COVID infections, you know, and that's lingering on. But really what's more accurate is PCOS and adrenal dysfunction go hand in hand. And whether that's high cortisol or low cortisol or abnormal diurnal pattern of cortisol or cortisol looks perfectly normal, but DHEA is jacked. You know, DHEA is an adrenal hormone. We can make it in response to stress. It's sort of a precursor. We can turn it into testosterone or into estrogen, but it can act just like testosterone in the body. So when DHEA is high, we're going to have oily skin. We're going to have acne. We're going to have hair loss. We're going to have hirsutism, just like if testosterone was high. So you know, having high DHEA can mimic having high testosterone. Um, having high DHEA can convert into higher testosterone levels. So having high adrenal hormone output can worsen PCOS symptoms. Um, so the, it's really, again, it's like, I feel like with everything with functional medicine, it's like, it's complicated. Um, yeah. I will say out of, out of everyone I've worked with and out of all the tests I've run, about a third of people with PCOS have high testosterone and that's their dominant androgen. About a third have high DHEA and the other third have both. And that makes it more complicated in terms of treatment because if we're you know, thinking about how to approach high testosterone, that's largely driven by insulin resistance. So that's gonna be more diet and exercise if we're talking about the high adrenal androgens, that's going to be more lifestyle, like, you know, keeping blood, internal and external sources of stress. So external psychological stress, internal stress, like skipping meals, not having balanced meals, riding that blood sugar roller coaster all day, over-exercising, under-exercising, not getting enough sleep. There are so many things that can contribute to that. Boundaries. I love boundaries, you know, at work and at home to give us the space to manage some of these internal and external stressors. So we have enough time to do those uh, adulting things that we we all know <laughs> need to do, like yourself three times a day, go to bed by 10 PM, exercise, move your body. Um, we need the time and space to be able to implement some of those as well as, you know, the more stress management, dedicated techniques like breathing and yoga and nature. I love my little 10 minute nature walk in the morning. I go out and 
check on my flowers. <laughs> the nature walk, not to be underestimated. I saw a study, oh, I wish I remembered the details, but it was looking at Qigong and how Qigong practices lowered DHEA. And I thought that was super interesting, returning to these lifestyle practices. And just to go back to the adrenal part, because people always ask me about testing, I think, you know, sometimes people will go to their primary care doc who will do a morning cortisol in the blood, just a one time. It's, we really need to see that diurnal pattern. So a four or six point salivary cortisol. And I don't know about you, but um, sometimes I think I will be able to predict someone's pattern and I'm wrong all the time. Same. I always tell people that I can't tell by looking at you. Like I will look at someone and be convinced like this is a high cortisol person. Like they're, you know, raring to go. Um, and then it'll be flat. And I'm like, they're hanging on by sheer willpower alone. I don't know how they're even standing up. And then, you know, the opposite, I will get the people who, who swear to me, I'm not stressed. I don't feel stressed at all. I'm fine. And they're like off the charts. So you really can't tell without looking. I think that's the big benefit of a willingness to test is then I can approach the treatment plan with confidence because I know what's going on. And another follow-up question people always ask me is, is it is your approach really that different? Do the results really inform what you're going to do? Absolutely. If your cortisol is high, that's a completely different treatment plan than if your cortisol is low. I hear that all the time about testing hormones and well, how how is this going to change your treat, treatment plan? I won't recommend a supplement that has an impact on a hormone without confirming that that's the right supplement. So, you know, you'll hear people willy nilly talk about, oh, take soft palmetto for PCOS or take zinc or take dim for high estrogen. And I need to get my own eyes on that test and confirm that that is the thing. And this is the right treatment approach for what's going on. I won't, it's too, it's too dangerous to mess with hormones without knowing. I have so many people, I'm sure you do too, taking the wrong supplements when they come to me, you know, they have PMS and they're taking DIM and they're throwing themselves basically into menopausal levels of estrogen. And now they're having night sweats and now their hair is falling out. So, you know, we really have to be careful about what we're taking and making sure that it's the right thing for us. Right. And when we're not taking the right things to your point, then we have to come off of those things in a way that's responsible. And then I don't know how you frame this, but usually it takes me a couple months to get back to baseline. I mean, maybe three months to get back to what your body wants to do. So then I can see how we add the treatment plan that you actually need. Yeah. And I mean, that's another good point because people always ask if they're coming off birth control, when can they test hormones? I say three months minimum, yep. like give it three months to wash out and see what your body's going to try to do on its own before we test. Yeah. That's kind of my rule of thumb, three months because of the way that eggs mature, because of the way our red blood cells mature, it's kind of three months is a general uh, good goal. And um so I say the same thing when, for example, we're adding supplements or herbs for adrenal health. I'm like, give me eight to 12 weeks before you really decide if this is working or not, because we have to let these herbs do their work on the communication between your brain and your ovaries and your endocrine organs. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Also, you know, just because something works 
in, you know, on paper, even if we have research, just because something works for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you because of this beautiful thing called bio-individuality. And, you know, I don't know about you, but ashwagandha does nothing for me, like nothing, but Tulsi tea, like a little tea bag, like that instantly chills me out. It's, it's you know, we've got to figure out what works with a person's own individual system. Yeah. It takes trial and error, but when we find our adaptogen of choice, what a life changer. (laughs) Well, Melissa, I've read in your posts that, and you kind of touched on this already, that maybe up to 95% of people with PCOS have insulin resistance. This is a huge number. It's really the root cause of some of the most troublesome PCOS symptoms and something we absolutely need to investigate. Will you tell us some of the most common physical signs of insulin resistance that maybe we can be on the lookout for? Yeah, the stat is 95% of people who are overweight, up to 95% of people who are struggling with their weight with PCOS will have insulin resistance, up to 75% of people who are not struggling with their weight at all are still insulin resistant. Um, And the reason this is important is because insulin tells our ovaries to make more testosterone and it tells our liver to make less sex hormone binding globulin, which gloms onto the testosterone. So it can't cause as many symptoms for us. Um, you know, we want to lower this because 50% of people with PCOS will be diagnosed with prediabetes or diabetes by the age of 40, which mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but, uh, that sounds like a baby to me now. I'm like, 40 was not Stunning. old at all. Um, so what we want to be looking for, and some of the things that I tell people to look out for are definitely carb and sugar cravings. You know, that would be one of the biggest signs that insulin might be not optimal. Um, feeling tired after a meal, especially a meal that contains carbs. Um, the converse of that, if you're having hypoglycemic episodes after consuming a meal, high in carbs, like for me, pancakes, if I eat pancakes for breakfast, I'm going to be a hangry, shaky mess like an hour later. Um, So that's really a sign that, that your insulin is not optimal and it's spiking too high or, you know, you're absorbing it too fast. Um, Difficulty losing weight, um, especially in the midsection. So, you know, the general recommendation is waist circumference over 35 inches is linked to insulin resistance. So if your waist is over 35 inches, the chances of you having insulin resistance are very, very high. Um, some countries, cause you know, us is a little different than other countries. Some countries go as far as to say 31 or 30, 31.5 inches. Mm-hmm. So looking at that waist circumference and where we're putting on our fat, um, the dark velvety skin that can happen around our neck and our armpits, inside our elbows or our knees, that's acanthosis nigricans. And that is a sign of insulin resistance. Similarly, and people don't realize this, but you know, those little skin colored skin tags, and most of us have them around like our bra strap or wherever there's friction. And that's normal. That's perfectly normal. But if you have more than a couple skin tags and they're in places that are not necessarily from friction, that's a sign that you might have insulin resistance. So, you know, there are a lot of these outward signs and symptoms that this is happening before we get to the point where it's crossing into pre-diabetes and diabetes. And then we're going to be having some of those frank diabetic symptoms like 
you know, thirsty, feeling really thirsty and frequent urination and frequent infections and colds, you know, then we're sort of into that already cross the line territory. I think it's so important that we spread awareness about what we might be able to look for on our own, because the fact of the matter is there's a lot of resistance in getting a fasting insulin when you go in for your annual exam, or if you're just being seen and you want to know, um, I've told this story before how I was working with a patient who had PCOS and um, her PCP was ordering labs and I was kind of serving a consultant role and I had fasting insulin and her doc said, Dr. Waddles is excessive. And it was mind blowing to me because it seems so foundational that a fasting insulin would be really appropriate. And the other reason why I think it's so important that we kind of know what to look for is so we can be an advocate for ourselves, which I hate that we have to advocate for ourselves so much, but that's the reality. And um, I've spent a lot of time in IVF clinics when I was a student and I'm uh, people need IVF. I'm thankful for the technology. I'm not against it at all. But I remember being in an intake with a patient who had, you know, the dark velvety skin, lots of skin tags over her whole neck. And the doc was saying, yeah, let's proceed with IVF. This is unexplained infertility. I don't know. Nothing to do here. I can't figure it out. And it was so startling to me because I didn't even need a lab or a physical exam. I could see with my eyes that there was an area where we could intervene and maybe she wouldn't need IVF in the end. Yeah, there's actually been recent research on PCOS and fertility and should should we proceed with, you know, assisted reproductive technology or should we take a break to work on nutrition and lifestyle before um, proceeding down that route? And just, you know, pregnancy rates, live birth rates are much, much higher when we take the time to address nutrition and lifestyle changes first. So it is, it's super, super important. Yeah. Just even if we still do need to um, mm-hmm. pursue assisted reproduction, I feel very confident that the outcome and the safety is improved when we work on those pieces. So I think it's really important. And I so appreciate all of the education that you do about this. On that line of metabolic health, many of our clients come in, they had a fasting glucose and a, hemo- a hemoglobin A1C. And they say, oh, this is, you know, this was my evaluation. Will you Tell us how those results alone are kind of limiting in our understanding of an individual's metabolic health trajectory and the natural timeline of their metabolism. Yeah. So, you know, just back to the basics a little bit, I never put any stock in a fasting glucose because so many things can impact it. It's like, what did you eat for dinner the night before? Were you stressed driving to the lab? How did you- stress of the blood draw? Yeah, stress of the blood draw. There are just so many things that can impact. You can have the dawn phenomenon where your blood sugar actually went low overnight and now it's your liver's producing glucose. So it's not even really a true fasting glucose because we've already surpassed that fasting level. Um, A1C is a little bit better because that's at least giving us a good idea of what's been happening in your blood over the last three months. Um, It's still just measuring glucose. And we know... It's not a binary, like no diabetes and then diabetes. There's a big spectrum that happens in between there and all these steps that we have to take to get there. So what we want to do is be identifying that insulin as it's rising because the insulin can start to rise a decade before we ever see an abnormal fasting glucose or abnormal A1C. A decade. Um, 
Back to the new guidelines. And again, I haven't fully gone through all of them. Did catch my eye that it said testing insulin is not recommended, which is weird because in 2018, they had recommended that everyone with PCOS get an OGTT and oral glucose tolerance test with insulin and said PCOS was a valid reason to test that. And of course, that's the gold standard when we're looking at insulin resistance or gestational diabetes or diabetes in our country, it's not being done outside of pregnancy for the most part. So I like to get a fasting insulin, a fasting glucose, plug it into the HOMA IR calculator and see where we are on that scale of insulin resistance. Are we not insulin resistant at all? Are we mild to moderate or are we severe? Um, and most of the people with PCOS that I work with end up in that severe category when we when we do get those numbers and we do look at, at the HOMA IR. Right. Well, you already knew where my train of thought was going because I wanted to know how you're testing insulin resistance. And it's um, the the calculators are nice because you, some of the labs will do an insulin resistance score for you, but it's more expensive. So having these pieces that you can do. Oh, it's free to Google. If anyone has a fasting insulin and a fasting glucose from the same test, go Google HOMA IR calculator and you can plug it in for free. Yeah. Yes. We love a free tool, That's a free, free resource. I know that you are very dedicated to personalizing your clients' treatment plans and that no treatment plan looks alike, but are are there some kind of general nutrition and lifestyle recommendations for supporting a healthy insulin sensitivity that you're thinking about with frequency? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the the dominating messages out there are cut carbs, cut sugar, try intermittent fasting. Um, but those are not things that are sustainable for a lifetime. And with PCOS being a lifelong condition, we want people to be making sustainable changes that they can stick with for a lifetime. It should not feel like a diet. So what we talk about when it comes to improving insulin sensitivity, lowering insulin, lowering glucose is prioritizing protein and fiber. Those two things are going to slow blood glucose absorption. Um, I use a moderate carb approach. If you look in studies, it's called a low carb approach. But if you read the fine print of the studies, what it is, is 40% of daily calories from carbs. So that's within the acceptable macronutrient distribution range. Um, it's more moderate than, you know, it's certainly lower than a standard Western diet, but I'm not talking about 50 grams of carbs a day or five grams of carbs a day. I'm talking about a moderate approach to, and including high quality carbs, paying attention to the quality of the carbs, just starchy vegetables, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes. Um, those should be the main sources of your carbs. Um, also, and I, I know there's a lot of debate out there and I still see PCOS practitioners recommending things like five or six meals a day. Um, and that just makes me uncomfortable because what happens is every time we eat, our glucose goes up and our insulin goes up. So I like to tell people to minimize the number of eating occasions throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So three meals, 
usually the stretch from lunch to dinner for most people is pretty long, unless you're a teacher. And then sometimes it's a different stretch that's wrong. But um, usually it's that 12 p.m. or 1 p.m. lunch to like 7 p.m. dinner. You're going to need a snack in there, especially if you work out after work. Like that's where you'll you'll need a snack. So it's really about using your own judgment. But, you know, really eating a meal when you're eating a meal and not grazing on things throughout the day so that you're constantly keeping your blood sugar elevated. And I see that with beverages too. People will be sipping on, you know, caloric beverages throughout the day and that's keeping your insulin constantly elevated. Um, then we got to talk about exercise. You know, the ones that make the most difference for insulin are lifting weights, um, especially those big muscles, you know, we want to be doing things like squats that are using your thighs and your glutes and using that glucose that you're eating walking, um, 10 minute walk after, after lunch and dinner can lower your post meal blood glucose, um, sleep, uh, 6.5 is the magic number when it comes to insulin resistance. So anything under that, you're going to have higher insulin resistance the next day, even one night of 6.5 is going to impact your, your insulin and what you eat. Cause you're going to crave more carbs. You're going to eat more calories the day after you don't get enough sleep. Um, and then moderating the stress response. So, you know, really, paying attention to sources of stress, um, trying to minimize sources of stress and minim um, moderating the way that we respond to stress so as not to spike cortisol and then glucose. These tips are so approachable. I appreciate that so much. And I actually really resonate with this. Like when you're having your meal, have your meal. Because the thought that I have to plan and create all these meals throughout the whole day is too much to think about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found, especially during the pandemic, when we were both home working from home, it was like, I was getting mad at myself that I was getting hungry again. It's like, ah, already? Like I already have to make another meal. Um, it's like, yeah, it was, it was four hours since you ate breakfast. So totally <laughs> pretty acceptable sense. over there. Yeah. Well, I, just really like your no BS approach to PCOS. It's evidence-based. It's really uh, realistic. And we had some questions come in from our podcast listeners, and I thought you'd be the perfect person to help me answer some of these. So are you ready? I'm going to throw some listener questions your way. Absolutely. Okay. So this one comes with, I hear this often. People want to know, is lean PCOS real. We see it all over the place. Is this a thing? I'm going to say, I'm going to go on the record as saying yes, but. <laughs> the classic yes, yes but. <laughs> yes, today, lean PCOS is a real thing. Um, so there are people who meet the diagnostic criteria for PCOS, but they do not struggle with their weight. Um, they might have high testosterone that's not being driven by insulin resistance, which we already talked about is the main thing driving testosterone, um, or their dominant androgen is DHEA, so that adrenal androgen. So I do see this. Um, I, I rarely see frank insulin resistance in lean PCOS. I do see inflammation, um, most often coming from the gut. So really inflammation, adrenals are the, the bigger root and then gut, sometimes gut, um, are the bigger root causes for lean PCOS. Um, 
there's some research that has is looking at different categorizations of PCOS. And a couple of years ago, there was one that categorized lean PCOS or the genes associated with lean PCOS as more of a reproductive type form of PCOS versus the typical form of PCOS, which is more metabolic in nature. That's the heart disease risk, um, you know, diabetes risk. Um, another factor, I see a lot of misdiagnosis of PCOS, particularly in lean people. So what we may be calling PCOS might not be PCOS at all, but post-pill polycystic ovaries, uh, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea hasn't been ruled out, congenital adrenal hyperplasia hasn't been ruled out, pituitary issues like benign pituitary growths that are raising prolactin. Um, all of these things have to be ruled out before we can say, yes, it's PCOS. Um, another confounding factor I see, um, and I've been seeing this more and more, um, athletes, collegiate athletes, especially if you were very, very active in high school and college, you were on the lacrosse team, you were on the track team, um, you know, you have had, and you've had PCOS all along, but the extreme nature of your training was keeping it under control. Mm -hmm. So you think you have lean PCOS because you don't have a weight problem. But the second that you stop that extreme level of activity, all of those typical symptoms of PCOS start coming in. And then you realize it actually was more of a typical PCOS all along. You were just managing the weight piece of it because of your lifestyle. Um, so to be honest, I think what we're eventually going to find, the more that we learn about the different causes of PCOS and the different patterns seen with PCOS, I really think we're going to see that lean PCOS is an entirely different animal from typical PCOS. Well, we know we'll we'll keep following you because you'll keep your eye on the research and you'll tell us what's happening. Mm -hmm. And the other the piece that I was thinking about that I meant to say earlier is even in someone who has a small body habitus that you might look at them and say, oh, they they don't struggle with their weight, they can still have an increase in that visceral adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. While I hate this term, it's like the skinny Any fat. fat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's totally a thing. Yep, the apple shape where you're, you know, the apple on two sticks, like if your body's shaped like that, it's very possible. It's just, you know, where we put weight in our yeah. body. Metabolically active tissue. Uh, this is a great question that I think will be important to answer. Uh, this listener asked, should I be thinking about ovulating regularly, even if I don't want to get pregnant anytime soon? Should you be thinking about bone health if you're not planning on breaking a bone anytime soon? Um, okay. You know, the answer is yes. Uh, the uterus and ovaries and having a regular menstrual cycle are doing things for us that go far beyond reproduction and having children. Um, we want regular cycles for regular hormones so that our bodies are exposed to estrogen as the dominant hormone in the first half and progesterone as the dominant hormone in the second half equally. Um, this balance is important for brain health and mood, bone health, heart health. And, you know, if that, those risk factors aren't enough to convince you, all of those cosmetic things that we all care so much about, like 
clear, healthy skin and thick, shiny hair. Like we need hormones for that. Um, you know, muscle, muscle strength, everything. Um, so, you know, and especially this is the thing I'm on my high horse about regular menstrual cycles, reduce the risk for endometrial or uterine cancer. We have to be clearing out that lining regularly, um, because this risk is four times higher in PCOS. So it's really, really important that we are shedding that lining regularly and that we are getting that equal exposure to progesterone because unopposed estrogen is what's responsible for that as well as, you know, other things like can increase the risk for breast cancer and ovarian cancer. It's not just the uterine cancer, but unopposed estrogen is not a good thing. And that's why they call you the period fairy, right? Because mm -hmm. you're going to get those cycles regular so that we can shed that lining and have this healthy balance of estrogen and progesterone. Mm -hmm. Love it. Melissa, in our last few minutes together, I always like to close the episode with something fun so we can digest all of this amazing facts that you've just dropped for us. So I have a fun kitchen challenge for you. Are you ready? Sure. All right. So your challenge is to make a hormone-friendly breakfast that does not involve eggs. And the bonus points, the bonus points come if it's something that we can make ahead of time because we're all so busy. What are you making? Okay, so I, I admit I rely on eggs a lot <laughs> because I recommend 25 to 30 grams of protein for breakfast. And every egg has six, so you have two, and then you put some collagen in your good. coffee, and you're like, good for the day, right? Um, I will tell you what I had for breakfast today that was not eggs. So I do a hormone balancing smoothie. I start with protein powder. I used pea. I can't use dairy. If people can use dairy, I recommend whey, um, some collagen. Then I put some antioxidants in there. So I put wild blueberries and a little splash of palm juice. Uh, then I put some leafy greens, always leafy greens. So it's baby kale today. Sometimes it's baby spinach. Uh, then I load it up with seeds. So I do hemp, uh, chia and flax. I had to make sure to get the chia seeds out <laughs> for this interview. Um, and then some sort of fat on top of that. So today I did a, a spoonful of sunflower butter, but sometimes I will do like a quarter avocado or, you know, depending on what fruits I've got in there. Um, and then I've been loving doing a little splash of non-dairy kefir for probiotics. So um, that is my go-to smoothie that I can make in under five minutes. So it's not really a prep ahead, although my husband will prep his smoothie the night before, except for the liquid. So he'll put everything mm. in the cup, put it in the fridge. And then the morning he adds the liquid, buzzes it and heads to work. So under five minutes. All right. This is the pro tip. Melissa, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And doing this episode in honor of PCOS awareness, which you're always spreading the word. This is such important information to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We always appreciate your support and to our show's producer, Paola Martini, for making this show happen. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you again next time. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.